typically everything that is going to screw us up happens to us in the first eight years of our lives. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when you're a kid, when you're born, you're, you're fresh <laughs> into the world, you have no idea what's going on. We look to our parents and our caregivers to make sense of the world. We have absolutely no idea how any of this works. We, we come in basically a blank slate in that regard and, and have, have no clue about what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down. It, it, it's all new to us. And so what happens as a child is you tend to view your parents and your caregivers as infallible. They are the norm. They are the standard. So when your parents teach you something, you, you have no frame of reference to question it. It's just, it's true. That must be true. That must be the case. And we accept it kind of blindly until, until later in life when we start to kind of develop our own experiences, which, which we'll get into in a second. But so, so why that's important is because your parents are not infallible. In fact, they're pretty screwed up and, and because people are pretty screwed up and they're screwing you up. And you parents out there, you're screwing your kids up and you don't even know it. Or maybe you do. It's kind of unavoidable because of the way this dynamic works. So we say things to our kids that, that we don't necessarily mean or we, we say we tell them things to sort of appease them, whatever it is. But we have to kind of recognize that, that those first eight years or so of their lives, they're accepting, they're, they're taking you at face value. Okay. Now, where we get into some serious problems with that is, you know, when, 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 you're, when you're a child, you're functioning at kind of a base emotional level. Okay. Your, your amygdala is, is what's active. It's the fight, fight or freeze. It's the, you're an emotional brain. You are not a rational creature yet. Uh, that comes much later in life. Because you're an emotional creature, everything you experience in childhood leaves an emotional mark. It leaves an emotional memory with you. So where that gets us into trouble, for example, is, is when, you know, dad comes in, he's angry, he's upset, he's had a hard day at work, he comes in, he kicks the dog, and, and then you as the, you know, the five or six-year-old, you get into some trouble, and, and he's coming to punish you. And he, he comes into your room, he takes off his belt, and he whips your butt with it. And before he does so, he says, you need to understand, boy, that this hurts me more than it hurts you, right? Again, as a kid, you have no concept of that not being true. We just accept that that's the case, that, that dad has to punish me, that it hurts him more than it hurts me, and gosh, man, that really must hurt him because that really hurts me. And so we just sort of accept that, and we, we, we turn that into truth. We adjust our worldview to allow dad to remain perfect in that situation. And that's just one example. There's, there's countless examples of, of the ways in which we do this to our kids and the ways in which our parents have done this to us. So dad whips the kid, blisters his butt. The kid is left to extract some emotional truths from that experience. And they may include things like, I'm a bad kid. I deserve to be punished. I can make people do things they don't want to do. We hurt those we love. We show love through discipline. Any of those sort of uh, emotional marks can be left with a situation like that. And then what happens? Well, so as we grow up, as we get a little bit older, we start to have our own experiences. Okay, now we're starting, you know, 8, 10, 12 years old. Or when you turn about 12 years old, you enter what Erickson calls the, uh, I think, I, I believe it's the fifth stage of, of Eric Erickson's uh, stages of development. This stage takes place, it's adolescence from about 12 to about 20 years old. And this is the, the identity versus role confusion, right? We're trying to kind of map that out. Who are we? How do we fit into the world? During this process as well, your, your prefrontal cortex, okay, this is the part of your brain that's responsible for, for higher order thinking and logic functioning. It's starting to come online. It's starting to be used more and more and more. 
uh, we're not very good at it, which is why you get, you know, teenage logic, which doesn't have anything to do with logic, but they're experimenting, they're trying it out. So you as a child, you, you have these experiences in your home where you have decided, you know, this, this is the way the world works. But then you go to a friend's house and you see that their family operates a whole lot different. You go to school and you see that all these other kids don't have to deal with this. And, you know, their dad doesn't whip them and, and their mom doesn't stay out all night and their parents don't fight and yell at each other. And you, you start to realize that the world doesn't really work the way you had thought that it did. You start to, to realize, you know what, dad was full of crap every time he said that this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, that's not true at all. It hurt me a lot. And he said big fat jerk and and it's during this kind of stage of life that we're you know this is why the teenage years are so difficult for so many people really the 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 bigger kind of the the teenage meltdowns the the blow-ups the rebellion it, it's really kind of owing to the fact that you're trying to undo a lot of these emotional truths that you've been carrying that now experience is contradicting and so trying to kind of navigate that both emotionally and, and rationally is really difficult. And, and, and we get into a lot of, you know, kind of mental upheaval and, and turmoil, you know, which is why we act out. Kids, teenagers do stupid things to kind of continue to navigate that and to get through that as best they can, um, some better than others. But what you're, what you're trying to do is, is to make sense of it. And what ends up happening is most of the time, some people don't have any, any problem getting through it, do a really good job of kind of challenging old beliefs and adopting new ones. But what a lot of us do is we get into this like persona crafting, okay? So what I mean by that is like, you know, dad was an abusive jerk and we decide once, once we realize what our problem with all of that was and we've had experiences now where we've seen that things can be different, we decide I'm never gonna be that way. Okay, I'm never going to be like dad. I'm never going to do the things that, that he did. I'm never going to treat anybody the way he treats people. This is who I want to be instead. And so we create this kind of, this persona. It's this facade where we only exhibit the qualities we want and we completely ignore the qualities we don't. The problem with persona crafting, well, there's a lot of problems with persona crafting, but, but one of the main ones is that personas are crafted under a very unique set of circumstances which always changes, okay? Life continues to change. So the persona you craft at, you know, 18 years old that you think is going to carry you through the rest of your life inevitably fails because your, your situation changes. And so you are then left kind of this fractured, you know, version of yourself and all of these kind of emotional truths and all of this, this emotional baggage that you want nothing to do with starts to kind of visit on you here and now. And so we, we scramble to kind of reassemble some sort of a, a, a new persona so that we can then continue on. And a lot of us do this. In, in fact, in therapy, most of the time when I'm when I'm getting new clients, when people are coming to see me, it's because they have recently had a persona failure. What they were doing no longer works. It's fallen apart. It's, it's crumbled around them. Now they're in distress. How do I do this? I can't deal with all of these deep emotions that I have about this or that, right? And so that's usually when they come looking for help. And what some therapists do is help them build a new persona, which doesn't do you any good in the long run, but we won't get into that today. That'll be another episode. So, so what you effectively do is you, you create sort of two versions of yourself, okay? You have, you have the version that is, that is emotional and then the, aver the version that is more rational and intentional. And then our disturbance comes from kind of vacillating between these two extremes, right? So... So when I'm explaining this to clients, um, 
to my to my shame, I use uh, an example from from the Disney movie Frozen. Um, I call this kind of the Elsa moment. Okay, so what what do I mean by that? The if you're not familiar with Frozen, um, the, the the main character in that film is is this this little girl Elsa, and when the story begins, she she has these magical powers. She can manipulate snow. I mean, nobody really actually knows what she can do, but uh, she can manipulate the environment and throws snow and ice and and whatever. And in the early scenes she is carefree and playing with her sister having a great time using her powers she, she's kind of this integrated whole right and things get a little out of hand and she accidentally harms her sister her parents then react in such a way that she internalizes kind of their reaction to what had just happened as this is dangerous i'm a bad person right kind of like we talked about that that my powers are dangerous and I shouldn't let anybody see them. And so what does she do? She she locks herself in her room, basically, it has nothing to do with anybody anymore, and ignores the fact that that she has these abilities and these powers because of what they sort of represent, that they will get people, they will get her in trouble, they will harm the people that she loves. She just completely withdraws emotionally and instead then puts forth this persona of this, you know, tight, collected, put together. Uh, individual, but but as we see kind of through the film, that doesn't really doesn't really last very long. And so what happens is it's it's coronation day. She's going to take over as queen, and because she has very little experience dealing with people, right? Because personas are crafted under a unique set of circumstances that inevitably change. She's now faced with this entirely new situation that she is completely unprepared for. She comes out. <laughs> She messes up, right? They see her powers. Uh, the, the people react to her negatively, kind of reinforcing that, that earlier emotional, you know, scar that's there from the way her family reacted to her. And so what does she do? She, she abandons the persona, right? She abandons the, the facade of the good girl. And there's a, a popular song about letting it go. And she instead flips to the emotional side, right? All the things that she's been repressing, all the things that she's been pretending are not part of her anymore. Now I'm going to embrace all of my power. And it's this slingshot from, from one extreme to the other, okay? You know, she, she is in effect saying, my whole life, I have been led to believe that these powers are wrong, that they're bad, that I, I shouldn't look at them. But what else does she have to fall on at that moment? She, she turns and she sort of embraces them. Okay, and she becomes the the sorceress, and she builds this fantastic castle, and, and and everything's great, except it comes at the expense of again her relationships, and that's really kind of where where the analogy ends because Disney didn't do a very good job of wrapping that <laughs> that up. Um, but I see this in in clients all the time. I see this in people all the time that we go kind of from one extreme to the other. We 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 push really hard for this persona. We push really hard against this kind of emotional. Uh, these sort of hurtful and painful emotional truths towards this kind of rational presentation of I'm in control. And then when that fails, we sort of swing back to these emotional truths and we try to challenge them as best we can while still sort of embracing them. And it, it just, it creates a mess. So what's the answer? The answer really is that both of these extremes, both the emotional truths you learned as a kid and the persona you're trying to present, they're both crap. They're both fake. They're both false. Neither of them is true, right? They're, the, the emotional truths, the emotional scars come from your imperfect parents where, when you assume that they were perfect, right? And the persona is an equal and opposite reaction to those emotional truths. So, so the task really 
and this is this is why I like the practice of, of psychotherapy. The task is to destroy them both, okay, or to find a compromise between them. And every every good clinical theory that I've encountered is after this this thing, this contradiction between these two extremes. It's looking for it, it's challenging it, and then it's coming up with a, a, a compromise. It's coming up with what is the truth between these two things. So so let me give you an example from my own life, okay? You know, my 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 clinical experience started out in community mental health. It was it was really <laughs> I got a bunch of stories from my time in community mental health that I'll uh, have to turn into to different episodes. But in community mental health, you do you, you never want for clientele, okay? You take whatever walks in off the street and there's no shortage. I, I, I could work every minute of every day in community mental health if I wanted to. You, you don't get paid very well, but there's constant work there. And so it was no big deal. Just by virtue of being a male therapist in that sort of a setting, I had, I had clients out the door, right? I, I had a line waiting for me. Didn't matter if I was any good or not. That's just I, I was available and so they, they came. Um, I then worked in, in a couple different places, but the time came for me to strike out on my own and to go into uh, private practice. And it was kind of a, a neat opportunity. I was excited about it and I sort of jumped at it, but I realized right away that as a therapist, you're really only as good as your reputation, okay? The people who I was going to rely on for referrals, you know, to, to send me clients, had no idea if I was a good therapist or not. They, because they weren't clients. These, these were doctors and working professionals and attorneys and people that I knew kind of personally who I was hoping would send me the kinds of referrals I wanted. They had no idea if I would be a good therapist or not. All they knew is whether or not they liked me. And so I, I realized that people just need to like me. But I still need to demonstrate the confidence and competence of, of being a halfway decent therapist. The problem that I, I immediately ran into was this emotional truth that I had been carrying that I was unaware of that told me arrogance is pride, right? And arrogance deserves to be punished or pride deserves to be punished. And what I was trying to do, kind of this persona that I was trying to project was that I was very competent, even though I wasn't super, you know, I was pretty fresh in my career, but I was trying to demonstrate my competency. I'm, I'm competent. I'm the best therapist in town. Absolutely. You're getting your money's worth. And heck yeah, I know what I'm doing. And, and I had to project that confidence while fighting this emotional feeling that that confidence was um, insincere, that it was, it was inauthentic and that I was going to be eventually punished for it. And so I, I entered this kind of state of, of turmoil and, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. Didn't even really know what was wrong with it. And I, I found at the time kind of a clever way to, to release some of that, that tension. And, and that was through the decor in my office which is, is so weird, but it, looking back at it, it makes total sense. I spent an inordinate amount of time and money and effort trying to make my office look awesome. And, and we did a pretty good job. It was kind of a, kind of a mid-century modern sort of Eames era thing, you know, very masculine, very cool, lots of great artwork and, and cool furniture in there. And I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back on it, I was hoping that the office would project the confidence necessary for me to feel good about what I was doing. I was hoping that when people came into the office, they would say, ah, here's somebody who, who's competent. And then I don't have to take on the role of saying I'm competent and confident. That the office would do the talking for me and so I could satisfy this sort of emotional struggle that I was having about 
arrogance and pride kind of deserving punishment. Seems like a like a win-win, except it never was. It, it was never enough. The office could never be awesome enough for me to overcome that that dichotomy that was existing within me. And it got pretty ridiculous to where like on my lunch break, I was buying more chairs. I was always finding more, more things to hang on the walls and, and more items, of, you know, to decorate the office with. And, and finally my wife was like, what is going on? You know, she, she looked at the bank statement and said, why, why are you buying more chairs? This is ridiculous. What are you doing? And I had to kind of pause and look at it for a minute. And I had to, I had to really kind of dig deep into it emotionally. What am I really doing? Because because what I'm doing doesn't make any sense. My behaviors are totally irrational, though I had a rationale for them, right? Looking at it, I was able to kind of come up with, with this, this, this notion that I need to be confident, but to be confident is to be prideful. To be prideful is to invite embarrassment, right? And the worst way that I could think to be embarrassed would be to screw somebody up in session, right? And there goes my confidence and my reputation. And so I was stuck in this, this kind of feedback loop. It wasn't until I really started digging into that that I realized there's a compromise to be made here. That compromise is on the one hand, I need to be confident. Okay, well, what can I be confident in that's not going to speak to, to pride? And I need to be humble. What can I be humble about at the same time? How do I solve these things? And it was actually a religious understanding that I have that, that helped me kind of kind of solve this problem. And, and that was to say, I may not be a great therapist, but I do have some fantastic talents that are very useful to the therapy profession. That is, I can take a really big, complex idea, I can distill it down and make it stupid simple for people. I, I, I make things a little easier to understand, I think. Second is, I, I think I'm a pretty good teacher. I think I'm pretty good at sharing these ideas, these big ideas that I'm able to, to, to pull down into kind of layman's terms. And then I'm able to share them effectively and efficiently with people. And then the third thing is I, I've always had a pretty good read on people. Ever since I was a little kid, I could watch two people interact with each other. And I had a pretty good sense about how each of them felt the conversation was going, whether or not somebody was upset by something. And it's just something I've always just sort of noticed and have, have kind of kept to myself. And it's been super helpful in therapy as I watch people sit in front of me and I watch their body language and I'm able to say, hey, tell me about what, what, what just happened for you there. So all three of those things I believe are talents. I believe they're gifts. I believe that they're gifts from God. So where is the pride? Where is the arrogance in acknowledging that God has given me these talents? I don't, I don't think there is any arrogance in it. And I have a responsibility, based on what I believe about talents, to use these gifts to help people and, and to share them with people. So that kind of solves the confidence issue for me, right? And then on, on the flip side of that, where is the pride, which, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of pride. I'm afraid of being punished for my pride. Where is the pride in acknowledging that my gifts come from God? I, 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 don't, I don't think there is any. And suddenly I was able to take these two kind of opposing ideas, the rational idea and the emotional idea. And I was able to strike a compromise between the two that then worked for me. And and fortunately it did, right? Fortunately, it, it, it totally did help me out. And since that time, I've, I've come to really kind of consider the role of religion in all of this. You know, I, I'm, I'm really active on Twitter and, and I, I totally lean into my faith quite a bit. Uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm, I'm proud to be, you know, who I am and to believe what I believe. And occasionally I get, a, I get attacked by people who either have no faith or, or from a different faith um, who want to tell me how silly it is and, and how religions cause more problems than, than this or that. And on the one hand, I'm thinking like <laughs> religion has been a part of our collective human history from the beginning. And, and that, that suddenly in 2020, we, we wake up and decide that it has no more place. It's just not going to happen. It's, it's so deeply ingrained and it's been such a part of our, our 
our existence for so long that you just kind of have to come to terms with the fact that religion exists and will continue to exist. But in, in thinking about this concept, right, the emotional mind versus the rational mind and, and kind of that fight, religion provides a fixed moral framework that allows us to make those compromises. If you remove that, what are you compromising to? There, there really isn't a, a fixed standard unless unless you look to the state, I guess, what the state is, you know, kind of the secularist idea, which is constantly in flux. And so you're always going to be kind of a little bent trying to, to, to conform to that. But, but religion, good religion, provide this fixed moral framework that allows your emotional kind of screwed up self, right, to sort of reconcile that end to the religion. And and then the rational mind that thinks it knows best can kind of reconcile itself. And, and you're able to, from there, extrapolate a, a compromise that works in, in a lot of a lot of ways. Now, that's not to say that, like, your parents can't use religion as part of screwing you up. They certainly can, and a lot of people do, and it's unfortunate, right? And when your parent and your dad comes in and whips you with the belt while quoting Bible verses, that's going to leave a, a different kind of mark, and that's going to make reconciling religion a whole lot more difficult for you in the future. And I totally get that. I'm not discounting that at all. But we're speaking to, to the we're speaking to the vast center here when, when we talk about these situations, right? Now, yes, outliers exist, and we deal with those kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. But for the most part, and for most of us, this is really kind of the problem process that we all sort of go through and we continue to go through. For, for the rest of your life, you're going to be discovering these little emotional truths that sort of visit on you. Most of the time, it's when you least expect it and it, it, it's not something you saw coming. It's certainly not something you appreciate or, or enjoy, but something gets triggered. Some emotional truth from your childhood gets triggered and you don't always have to go back to the childhood to reconcile it. We just, we just look at what does it say? What's the truth telling us? Like in my case, it was pride invites punishment and, and kind of this, this notion that God's just waiting for me to screw up so he could put his thumb on me. You know, that comes from somewhere and where it comes from isn't so important. What's important is that I was able to look at it and reconcile it, right? I was able to look at it, recognize it, and decide whether or not it had any value in my life. There's really a lot more that we could kind of go into on this subject, but we'll just uh, leave it there for now. And thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon.